Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple and the host of the Project Purple Podcast. We have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a few quick updates. The Project Purple Podcast has surpassed over 100,000 plays. So thank you to all our guests for allowing us to share their journeys and to all the listeners out there for listening. Just when I say that number, it's pretty special because we had this idea to start a podcast eons ago now, it seems like, and uh, to hit 100,000, which I guess is a is a pretty good benchmark for us here at Project Purple is just really, really special. So thank you to everyone for listening, sharing, and for those guests that have come on and trusted us with sharing their journeys. 2023 was a record year for Project Purple. We we broke so many records uh, from our marathon teams to our third-party events, to our golf outing, to our virtual events. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you to everyone who supported, donated, and participated in a Project Purple event in 2023. You made it a record for us. Many of our 2024 teams, in terms of our marathons, have launched, which is so exciting as we record this here in January, late January. Um, It's just so awesome that now many of our 2024 teams have launched. In 2024, we are back in the Boston Marathon, which is gigantic for us as an official charity partner. This now makes us an official charity partner of the five largest world marathons. Uh, Many of them have launched already. Uh, our Berlin, London, and Boston team, and Chicago, and we'll be launching our New York City Marathon team very, very soon. We also have our first virtual event of the year coming up in-house is our Purple Patties. That has launched, and it's happening in March. For those that live local here to the Connecticut area, we are excited to announce our second annual charity pickleball classic happening in uh, Oxford, Connecticut on February 24th. And we also just launched our fourth annual charity golf classic, which is happening in Norwalk, Connecticut at Shorehaven Country Club on June 3rd. To learn more about all these great events, visit our website at projectpurple.org and make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on all things Project Purple. Without further ado, let's meet our special guests coming to us all the way from sunny and warm, which is the total opposite. I don't think we've seen sun here in Connecticut in like 10 days. Oh dear. Yeah. Oh dear is right. We're coming <laughs> to us from central Florida, Christina Grace. Welcome to the Project Purple podcast, Christina. Hi, Dino. Thank you very much for having me. It is um, amazing to be here to talk about uh, my experience and I'm just Every day, every morning I wake up, I'm just like, oh my goodness, I, I'm breathing and I'm not in the hospital. So <laughs> it's 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 a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Well, the pleasure is all ours. And I know you've got a, a very interesting story to share with our audience. I'm excited to have you on as we were kind of playing catch up or c- connecting the dots before we hit record. You know, we bring a lot of survivors on this podcast and, and this hasn't just become a survivor's podcast. We've been clinicians, athletes, participants, we we try to go into a lot of places and, and we have had a lot of survivors. I think as if you look at over the years, if you did like a guest count, survivors would be the majority. But I like to use that word survivors as, as a very broad, right? Because um, we've brought people who have battled other cancers other than pancreatic, even though we, we do have a very large focus here. But one of the things that I was saying to to you before we hit record is right, right? Like I, I think 
it's important to share and bring awareness to things that are related to pancreatic cancer, but maybe not necessarily pancreatic cancer, i.e. pancreatitis. Right. Your your journey, which you're going to talk about in a second, I'm not giving it away because I want the audience <laughs> to hear it from you. Um, but I, I think this is critical. You know, we are an awareness organization, I always say first, and, and a big part of our awareness is this podcast. So sharing stories of survivorship, of people's journeys, um, not necessarily directly related, like exactly related to pancreatic cancer is still very important to our mission and to what we do. So with that, I want to hand it off to you. This is always the first segment of our podcast is always a guest opportunity to kind of share their journey. I'm sure your friends and family are going to tune in and they'll probably know your story and maybe they'll learn something new about you. Um, (laughs) But, you know, for those that don't know you, this is your opportunity to kind of share your background and your journey. And with that, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Dino. Um, yeah, so I am currently 42 years old, uh, living in Central Florida and born and raised here. Um, I was living a relatively normal life, uh, no family history of cancer, um, nothing that would stand out or bring cause for concern to be on the watch for anything in particular in my in my life. Um, I, in late 2020, around Thanksgiving, I started experiencing some uh, strange, uh, almost like my ribs were, were tired, my ribs were hurting. um, And I chalked it up to stress. I have anxiety. I have had a history of depression. Um, and usually around the holidays, um, I find myself in, in just kind of a stressful state. And we had been experiencing some issues with our, our dog at the time, and it was just stressing me out. Um, but I was also exercising more during that time than I'd ever had before. I was trying to be more healthy during that time than I ever had before. Um, and so to me, I was just like, okay, it's just stress. I need, I just need to calm down. Um, I called, uh, the teledoc because of course, during 2020, we, we weren't going to the doctor. We, that was not, that wasn't a thing unless you had COVID. Um, and so I got a hold of the teledoc and they, you know, told me to take some, some pain relievers. And then like, it just wasn't going away. The, the discomfort wasn't going away. Nothing that I was doing was helping. And so after a couple weeks of this, I looked at my husband one evening and I was like, I think we just need to go to the ER. I, you know, maybe they can just get me some, um, muscle relaxers, you know, Maybe there's just something that I'm missing, something simple that they and they can just pre- prescribe something that'll that'll make it go away. And um, you know, we had considered going to like a Centra Care or something like that, but I was like, let's just go to the ER. Um, it's nothing; they'll be fine. Um, so we went to the ER, and oddly enough, I was the only person there. My husband and I were the only people there and it was, it was a newly opened ER. And, um, so got right in 
and the uh, the doctor on call, he started asking me questions. Um, he seemed kind of suspicious. And I know that there are people who walk into hospitals and basically they just want drugs. Um, they're looking for their next fix. And <laughs> so I think he was kind of suspicious about me just, I, you know, I, I'm having this irritation, please, you know, what can we do? Um, and they did some tests, um, and he was kind of at a loss and said, Hey, you know, the last thing, you know, if it make you feel better, um, we can do a CT scan. And I said, Oh, okay, sure. Why not? If that gives us some answers, I had I had no idea. I wasn't thinking anything. Um, let's do a CT scan. We did the CT scan. Um, my husband and I were waiting in the room. He comes in and he says, um, I'm, I'm sorry. We have found a mass on your pancreas. You have pancreatic cancer. Ooh. And the world stopped. The my brain just went to this really weird space time continuum thing of processing and being like, okay, did we, re- did, did I hear that? Am I dreaming? Um, and so things got kind of fuzzy from there. And from there, they uh, transported me to the hospital. Um, my husband wasn't allowed to go with me. So I was just by myself in this ambulance going to our local hospital. And I found this piece come over me that knowing that at the time, my thought was, well, at least Queen Elizabeth, my dog and my husband will outlive me. And that was like the most comforting thought <laughs> that I had at that time, because in my mind, being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I surely was going to be dead in three days. Um, because honestly, I didn't know a whole lot about pancreatic cancer other than, you know, uh, Steve Jobs and you know, the reports of just how quickly um one can pass or you know, those those are the the high profile things that you take away from from the media in regards to pancreatic cancer um and so for for sure in my mind i was going to be dead in 3 days to 3 weeks and queen elizabeth was going to outlive me and so i i was i was pretty okay with that i thought i've i've lived a good life i've done most of what i've wanted to do i think so it's fine um so but like this is all from that one CT scan. And so they, yes. like at that point, they're like, hey, it's definitely cancer. Or did you just like, and I don't bring this up to be like mean or nasty, but this brings up a good point. And I'm sure we're going to get to this. Like, I, I think sometimes there's like this responsibility on the doctor's standpoint, right? To say like, hey, we saw something on your pancreas, it's pancreatic cancer, but did they do a biopsy? Do they know it's cancer yet? Like, you know, Correct. and like that is such doom and gloom as you just 
did a great job of defining and explaining because every time, I guess I'll give us a, a, a shout out here on this podcast. That's what we're trying to change, right? This narrative is that, you know, it's not doom and gloom. Right. But that's what the media and a lot of people perceive like, hey, having pancreatic cancer, oh, Steve Jobs, oh, you're done. Two days, yep. three days, right? Like, yep. and not to say that it's not serious, but like, let's pause, let's hit the brakes. And for a clinician to just like off the screen, off the scan, I mean, I guess, I mean, I don't know, maybe he was experienced enough to realize yeah. what a cancerous tumor looks like on a screen, on a scan versus a non-cancerous tumor, I guess. I don't sure. know. And my husband and I, we had discussions about that um, later on, um, because looking back, I feel that was a bit irresponsible. There, um, there had been no uh, endoscopy biopsy uh, until the hospital. And so once I had that done at the hospital, uh, they came back and said, well, it's not pancreatic cancer. We don't know what it is. And <laughs> so they said it's cancerous, but we don't know what it is. And I'm like, okay. Um, you're and kind how of fast like, was that, like, uh, from that, that was, original diagnosis? Sure. I want to say that was two or three days later. So for two to three days, you're sitting there in the hospital because you get transported right so i assume they kept you over did they keep you overnight in the hospital yes i was there yeah so in december december 15th of 2020 i was admitted to the hospital and was released december 18th uh 2020 which was my husband and i's anniversary (laughs) and um so uh we i was released without knowing what kind of tumor it was and on the one hand, when they said it's not pancreatic cancer, there's there's relief there, right? So there, yeah. you're like, okay, cool. But then on the other hand, you're like, well, what is it? What what are we dealing with? What does this mean? And you're sending me home, and we don't know. Uh, and you're so, still in pain. The pain is still there, right? Like the actually, symptoms. And- actually, it had gone away. They put me on. Well, at the ER, they had given me some type of probably antacid thing, like heavy duty. Um, And then they had also prescribed me pantoprazole. Um, So I don't know if it's if all of this scared my body into like, okay, no more pain. We got other things to focus on now. Or, you know, if if it was some type of heart severe heartburn um, type thing going on. Um, so yeah, oddly enough, I go home um feeling fine-ish, um concerned, obviously, worried, um, but but relieved again that it's not pancreatic cancer, yet we're still searching for answers. And so we had follow-up appointments with a local oncologist and they had done more testing. Uh they had to send it off to I want to say Michigan for further diagnosis. Um, They did some type of special genetic testing on it. Um, Meanwhile, 
uh, my local oncologist, because the tumor was on my pancreas, she referred us to Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank goodness, uh, it, she she had a surgeon to refer us to. And so we started going down that route. So from where I live, Tampa is about two hours away on a good day on I-4. Um, so we had to commit for treatment to go to Tampa, um, which was a very good decision. Moffitt is a wonderful place. Um, and, you know, just amazing experience there. So thankful for them. So it was about a month before we had a diagnosis. And the way I found out about the diagnosis was kind of funny. Um, we were still in contact with my local oncologist here. And I was meeting with the surgeon at Moffitt for the first time, January of 2021, a month later after they found the tumor. And we were getting, we were, we were literally in the room with the surgeon. My husband was getting phone call after phone call from the local oncologist. And he's like, I better take this. Like she keeps, she keeps calling. And so he's on the phone the surgeon had come in and she had like a little sticky note on her, her papers. And the, my local oncologist is talking to the surgeon and they're like, yes, here's the diagnosis. And the surgeon is like, yes, that is what uh, one of my coworkers thought too, based on my data. And so the diagnosis was Ewing sarcoma of the pancreas. And so I knew nothing of what, what, I don't know. What, what is that? Mm. Who is Ewing and why does he have sarcomas? Like, what? <laughs> um, and why do I have it? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, then my surgeon, she's like Googling Ewing sarcoma pancreas. And, and she says, well, this, this is pretty rare. Uh, it looks like there's only maybe a couple dozen other documented cases of, of viewing sarcoma on the pancreas. And I'm like, oh, well, that just sounds, it just sounds typical for the adventure that I'm having right now. Um, and so come to find out, yes, Ewing sarcoma, sarcomas, and Ewing sarcomas usually appear um, on children. Uh, teens and usually in bone. Yeah. But here I was at the time, 39 years old and it's on my pancreas. So it was kind of befuddling. Um, And then also at the same time, my surgeon was looking at my CT scans and she says, well, the tumor is too large and too close to uh, this vein. And so we need to do chemo. Uh, to reduce the size, and then we can do surgery, uh, which kind of broke my heart a little bit at the time mm. because uh, my local oncologist said, "Oh, well, they'll probably do surgery, and then they'll probably do a few rounds of chemo afterwards." And they, I feel like the medical, um, they they usually make it sound so simple, and to them, it probably is. <laughs> But when they do it all day, I guess. Yeah, uh, it's exactly. a little bit. I, it's become so routine, right? Like yeah. It's, 
par yeah. for the course. So for them, I'm sure it just it's so simple for the patient. It is it is uh, just uh, the worst thing you can possibly hear. I think no matter no no matter what your diagnosis, just hearing that you have cancer, that treatment needs to be had, um, it 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 turns you upside down. Um, so, you know, after saying like the surgeon needed, uh, chemo to shrink the tumor. So then I went to meet with the, my sarcoma oncologist and this all happened within like a week. So I started chemo like a week later, I had my port placed and then I started chemo the same day. And Unfortunately, for Ewing sarcoma, the treatment plan is 14 rounds of chemo, and those rounds alternate between inpatient chemo for five days and then one day of outpatient chemo. So you have five days of inpatient chemo, a week off one day of outpatient chemo, a week off, and so on and so forth. So I, yeah, weekly, there was not a lot of time to process this. And I have um, videos on my website of me trying to process this. I started taking video um, not long after uh, they found the tumor and just... I don't know why I did like little vlog videos, but I just felt like it would be good to have in the future um, and to kind of share with others, even though I didn't share them at the time. I just, I, I just felt like it was important to have those videos of how I was processing because everything was just moving so quickly. And I, my expectations were so very far off from what actually happened and how things were actually going to go. Um, because I, I had, I'd been working at a university for, gosh, 15, 16 years at the time. Um, and I was determined to work from the hospital bed while receiving chemo. Like I just thought, Oh, my hospital stay will be like going on vacation and and staying at a hotel and I'll just be able to work from there. It'll be fine. Um, And I think at the beginning of treatment, like I just had a lot of support. I have a lot of faith. I'm a Christian. I grew up Christian. I, I knew God was going to, work something out but i was still angry with him there's so many there's so many aspects to going through uh treatment that your mind and body just don't know how to handle and so going into the inpatient treatment i just had this mindset that it's going to be fine it's going to be cool i'm going to be like at a hotel i'm going to get pampered i'm going to have meals um but it was so the opposite of that. And that sucked because 
and it's of no fault of my my team. It's of no. It's it's just the process and what has to happen. And so I was receiving chemo each night, um, and I had to be on another IV twenty four hours a day to protect my organs, to protect my bladder and kidneys from the chemo drugs, which are killing off everything else. Um, my chemo always started at night, which, you know, just be based on the timing of things. Um, and they, you don't sleep in the hospital. You can get some sleep, but you don't get, it's not, okay, I'm going to bed at 10 PM. I'm going to get up at 8 AM. It's being woken up every four hours for, for, um, your vitals. It's being woken up at 4.30 AM to take blood and see where your numbers are at. Um, and the beeping, the constant <laughs> beeping, um, the machines that that just um, would have air in the lines beeping, and so it's it's really almost torturous. Um, at least for me, it was. You know, I, I'm not here to speak about anyone else's experience, but it was. Not only was my body being attacked by the chemo, my mind was being attacked by all the sensory overload, the, you know, the being woken up every four hours, not getting rest, um, the beeping, the food that wasn't great or, you know, the nausea. And um, so the inpatient portion of the chemo was my nemesis. And I never found a way to make it tolerable. Um, for most of my cycles, uh, my husband could attest, like, I feel like I just tried to sleep. And then if I wasn't sleeping, I was crying. Um, and he would try and play Uno with me. Like that was probably the only thing that I ever would, would laugh about was playing Uno and making up the rules and just doing like that was my only escape sometimes which is funny because now I hate playing uno because we played uno in the hospital <laughs> um so that the inpatient chemo was the absolute worst for me you come home you have a week off but during that week you're getting the shots to increase your white blood cells you're having all of the um the side effects. I had all of these side effects that, you know, were expected, of course. Um, and then you might feel fine for a couple of days and then you go back to the outpatient chemo, which basically would take a whole day to complete um, if things were going well. And that was also kind of heartbreaking because you'd see patients come in get their chemo for maybe an hour and leave. And you see maybe five of those people throughout your time in the chair. And you're like, man, I'm still sitting here. I'm like, I, I, and because of COVID, you're not talking to anyone. You can't make any friends. You're separated. Um, so the whole chemo experience for Ewing sarcoma for me was terrible. And with each um chemo cycle 
my body just deteriorated. Uh, it was killing off everything inside of me and it was killing me mentally. I got to a point because I did start, like, I was like, okay, I can still work from home. Um, and I did that for about a month until I could no longer do that. Um, thankfully I was working for a university and, and got the FMLA and that was fantastic. Um, and I'm so appreciative for that, but my expectations again, were not meeting the reality that my brain was not functioning the same. I was entering into a deep depression and I thought that may have been just me, but it was also the drugs. Um, the side effects of the drugs were, you know, you may experience depression and anxiety. So um, I think it's important to let patients know I don't know. I had a, it was really hard for me because one of the nurses said, go home, live normally, do what you would normally, uh, go out, go, go to the park, go out to eat. Um, and that was, that was impossible for me. And so then I felt like, well, I'm, I'm a bad cancer patient. I'm, I'm not living up to the expectation that I should be going out and doing these things, and let alone this is in the time of COVID. So to be doing things normally, to have the desire to go out with my bald head and and feel miserable and nauseous, like I just wasn't seeing how living normally during my treatment time was going to be possible. And what I really wanted was someone to say, to say it's okay that you feel like crap. It's okay that your mind isn't all there. It's okay that you really just see your bed as a safe space and you don't want to leave it. But, you know, maybe we get you out of bed for 20 minutes. We get you into the sunshine for 10 minutes and we, you know, but it's okay that that you're laying in bed and that you don't want to listen to music and that you don't want to read anything and that you don't want to watch TV because these chemo drugs are screwing you up royally. Um, whereas I think I just felt like I was a bad person for not interacting with the world, for not even wanting to listen to music. Like I, I just kind of felt shame and guilt because my husband, my mom were like, you should try listening to music. You should try reading. You should. And I, I was just like, I can't. And it was so hard for them to understand that I couldn't at that time. So, you know, if, if there's anyone out there who feels like there's these expectations on you to, to be normal, to go through treatment and still pretend like your life is normal, to have an, a positive attitude and to like, it's okay that you don't because these chemo drugs, not only are they killing off everything in your body, they're, they're killing off the way your brain works. And it's very hard to, to interact and to behave as you would, you know, as yourself pre-treatment. So I think it's a bit unfair sometimes. Um, and I, I think, go ahead. No, I, I think the other thing too, I mean, so 
this wasn't that far ago, but I think we've kind of forgotten during that time. And I know you've mentioned it a couple of times with COVID, like, great. You're also in Florida, which I know operated a little bit differently in some aspects, but, you know, I know from the, the medical standpoint, you know, there were a lot of precautions. So to your point, like, yeah, you're in the hospital and yeah, you might like during that time. And we've heard this time and time again, it was very lonely and very different than I think what people today experience and what people prior to experience, you know, in terms of having support or having people there with you, that wasn't the case. Like you're at it by yourself. And like, so you're saying like, Hey, like you're going on this five day trip to the hospital thinking it's going to be like a spa, but then the reality is you're just staring, staring at the ceiling, counting maybe the holes that are in the, the tiles, right? Like how many yeah. holes are in each tile, right? Like, and that just gets like really, really daunting and and mentally, like for those that have gone through it can probably, you know, relate to this, like how shitty that is to do anything alone is like really hard, but now try to throw this fighting cancer by yourself and the other thing too here, and I know hindsight's always 2020, Christina here, but like I can't imagine, I can't. Like, and, and most of our listeners are not going to be able to imagine this. And I know we've had people on this podcast that are around your age band here that have gone through this, but and I and I know this is like very hard to for the the public to comprehend, but you said from one week from three days, you had three days, you were saying, hey, it's pancreatic cancer, doom and gloom. Oh, it's not pancreatic cancer. It's this Ewing sarcoma, which is really rare. And we did our research here. Like, you know, there's like, it's like one of the rarest pancreatic cancers that they find. Now there's like, I think eight or nine reported cases. Like, you know, if you look in the annals, there's not that many, right? Right. But then you go right into chemo, like a week later, like you're starting this treatment and okay, five days, that's like pretty intense, man. No one wants to be in a hospital and then you're home. But like, so within like three weeks, you're in it, like yeah. you're in the trenches, like you're on, you're not even in the back line. You're on the freaking front line of this thing, like within three weeks. And oh, by the way, like you're like, yeah, I had this job. Like everything changes. <laughs> like, 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 listen, you're not going to the store. You're not feeding the dog. You're not worrying about work. Like everything changes. Yeah. And the roller coaster of emotions here, as you've defined very eloquently, it's like insane. Like, so like, this is all like, I think for me listening to this, I think like what you experience emotionally is like what people should experience. Anyone who goes through the, who have gone through this and be like, yeah, like it's all cool, man. I'm like, cool hand, Luke. Nah, that that's not normal. But what you experience is extremely normal, but it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot to process. And I think, ah, man, I, I'm thankful that we acted so quickly. Um, it's an aggressive cancer, which rightfully calls for aggressive treatment. Um, and maybe it was a good thing that we just kind of rolled with the punches and just one step after another and boom, a week later, here I am sitting in the hospital getting chemo. Maybe that was fine. But then we also miss some of the, the details, like the, some of the most minute details can affect a patient so drastically. So I had, um, I had my port placed 
um, which is like a whole other kind of emotional thing to deal with, uh, is just this idea of this foreign device put into your body. Yeah. A a piece of equipment put into your body. That's supposedly going to make chemo easier, better. Um, and then you go home and you're looking at yourself in the mirror with this thing kind of sticking out of your chest. Um, and I had a dual port placed, uh, well, okay. Side story here. I had a port placed. That day, um, later that day, I immediately am admitted to the hospital at Moffitt for uh, chemo. Uh, so I'm dealing with nausea from the port placement, nausea from receiving chemo, um, just a terrible time that first evening. Then I go, um, I get my outpatient chemo. And there was a problem with accessing my port. And, but for outpatient chemo, that was fine. We got it. Like everything was fine working for that day. And then I get a call a few days later saying there's been a recall on my port. So they need to (laughs) go in and replace it. So, uh, the next time I was down there, they had to replace my port. And then I went into inpatient chemo again that same day. So then we're dealing with the whole thing all over again, the nausea, the just blah. Um, and so that, I, you know, I'm like, okay, I have this really rare cancer. And then I have this really rare recall, which, you know, I, I don't think that happens too often. And I'm like, what, what's next? What, what's next for me? But yeah, it was just all these emotions. And here I am just trying to be like, okay, I, I can be positive. It's all going to work out. I'm praying as hard as possible. I'm, I'm mad at God, but I'm closer than ever to him in my faith. Um, and we're moving forward. And then, you know, as, as cycle after cycle goes by, my depression gets worse. My anxiety gets worse. There's a couple trips to the ER for neutropenic fevers, which that results in, you know, five days in the local hospital here. Um, but over this, so from January to the end of April, I did eight cycles of chemo. And over that time, they did a couple CT scans and thankfully the tumor was shrinking significantly. So the silver lining was it's working. This, this hell that I'm going through, it's working. Yeah. And so by the end of April, they got to a point where it's like, it's shrunk by 90%. And I'm like, that seems good. I mean, yeah. well, they, okay. They didn't say 90%. They they can't, I don't think they can say numbers like they said it in their medical terms, but in layman's term, we can consider it shrunk by about 90%. And so now my surgeon is comfortable with doing surgery, the Whipple surgery, which I knew nothing about. Uh, I think my, my husband had done a lot of the research. I wanted to stay ignorant. I, and I, I'm glad I did it. I think that was the way to go. Um, So then we met with the surgeon in May and she's like, okay, so for the Whipple surgery, uh, here's what happens. 
we're going to take half your pancreas. We're going to take your gallbladder. And she circled like these other uh, pieces of my digestive system on a piece of paper. And I just start bawling. I am just like, and she is like, you know, it's, it's, she does this every day. It's a piece of cake for her. And I'm just bawling over these digestive pieces that I've, I had never heard of before. I don't know what a, what a duodenum, I don't know what that is, but it's leaving me. I feel like if it's a part of me, it's kind of necessary. Um, and she's like, it, it's okay. It's okay. It's easy. like, you know, it's, it's fine. It's easy. Um, you'll be fine. And, and she, she's a fantastic surgeon. I love her so much. She is so dedicated to her job and I'm so thankful to have had her. Um, because if I didn't, if I didn't have her positivity, <laughs> I, it would have been doom and gloom on my end. Um, but this was still me not realizing what a Whipple means um, and what the after effects of a Whipple are um, at the time. And a part of me is glad that I didn't know because the recovery and like it, I, oof, that would have been a tough one to sell to me. Um, so I had the surgery, uh, which went well. It was a, I think a seven and a half hour ordeal. Um, and I remember waking up and the first question that I asked in the post-op room, uh, my surgeon came over. And I asked her, is it gone? And I remember my surgeon saying, I knew she was going to ask that. I knew she was going to ask that. And she said, yes, yes, we got it out. Um, everything went well. And then I passed out again. Uh, I was very thirsty, though. Oh, I was so thirsty. But unfortunately, they can't give you a whole lot to drink. Um, and over the next... I think I was there, I was there in the hospital for eight days recovering. That was miserable. The whole like, okay, we got to get you to go to the bathroom. Um, the catheter part for me, like that was, that was horrific. Um, I had never had that done before. Uh, I don't want to scare anyone. <laughs> I don't want to scare anyone. Well, no, but I, I think the honesty here is important because I mean, like, the Whipple is like, you know, the major surgery that can be done. Um, and, you know, it, and I think though the the key here, and, and you said this, Christina, and I've kind of caught on something here as well um, in terms of roles. And you mentioned your husband was like the researcher and your job was to just get through the chemo, get through these treatments, you know, and that that's very important, which we'll talk about in a little bit here. But the surgery is no joke. I mean, like, you know, this is not a, an easy surgery by any means, you know, they're, they're going in and we've talked about the Whipple many times, but, you know, just to, to revisit, you know, in a very quick way, it's a major surgery. They're taking out whatever tumor is there, any surrounding tissue, and then anything that is in that vicinity. Um, I always use the example. It's kind of like, you know, they, they, the, the parameter that they use is almost like, you know, if the tumor is like that quarter, they're taking out like almost like a half dollar because right. they've got to marginalize everything around there. And, and from an anatomy standpoint, or anatomy standpoint, I should say, 
you know, the pancreas sits close to the spine, but is also, you know, the gallbladder is connected nearby, the liver, the intestines, the stomach, the duodenum. So there's all these parts that are responsible for digestion that are really close to the pancreas. And also the pancreas is responsible, right? It's a, it's your, it provides insulin into the body that helps you control like, you know, these spikes and all this stuff. So it's a big, big, important organ. I think that's something that people kind of miss out as well. It's such an important organ in the body. Um, You can't really live without it. If they do take the whole pancreas out, then you become an instant diabetic and you've got to be on, you know, medication for the rest of your life. And even for those that have Whipple's, a lot of them become diabetics as well. But, you know, that's why I think this is a, you know, this is a no joke surgery, as we said in the very beginning, regardless of what type of pancreatic cancer you have, if you have the Whipple, it is a no joke surgery, man. And regardless of whether you do robotic or traditional where there, you know, some people say, oh, well, doing a robotic Whipple is different than, you know, the traditional way of, you know, slicing someone open and, you know, going in there with, with actual human hands. It's still no joke, man. It's not, it's not pretty. And it, yeah, like you said, like, I didn't know what the pancreas did. I didn't know. I'm, I, Most people don't. So yeah. I'm not interested that much in my anatomy. It's good to know these things sometimes. I didn't know. Um, And so I didn't, I didn't realize the impact that it would have and the whole rewiring of my digestive system Mm -hmm. um, and how long it takes the body to recover from that and how long your stomach's like, which way do I go now? What am I supposed to like? How does this work now? And I think um, the expectation for recovery time, like it took me eight months to feel normal again, like a human, it it took me eight months to feel human again. But I do want to preface that by saying after the surgery, they, uh, my margins were clear, good news, localized, everything was excellent. um, The most excellent it can be for, for what I was dealing with. but then I think about a month, six weeks later or so, uh, I needed to start chemo again. So here I am having done the Whipple, which is a kind of a big deal. Uh, my digestive system's still trying to feel like I had lost a good 40 pounds. Um, and so here I am, tinier than ever, not eating and drinking as I would normally, and they want me to do more chemo uh, for insurance, of course, for you know, Ewing sarcoma. There could be a cell still roaming about in my body, and so uh, they wanted me to do six more chemo cycles. Ewing sarcoma calls for fourteen chemo cycles, um, and so. I knew that was the plan. And I'm like, okay, we we can do this. We've got this. Uh, I can't remember if I did outpatient or inpatient first. I think it was inpatient. Um, I did. And I think after that inpatient visit, I ended up back in the local hospital again with a neutropenic fever. And then I did outpatient again and ended up back in the hospital, neutropenic. Um, my counts, my white blood cell counts were low, red blood cell counts were low. 
um, everything was just low and my body was not recovering um, at all. And so I had several blood transfusions. I had platelet transfusions. Um, at one point in the hospital, I had like three IVs going at the same time. And I'm sitting there thinking like, so once I get out of here, mm-hmm. I have to go back and do more chemo. <laughs> I was like, and we were at a point where I was like, okay, if I don't get out of the hospital on this day or this day, my chemo has to be pushed back. And so the thought was, we're always getting to the next step. Well, um, I was in the hospital and my husband, who was thankfully, there was a miracle, a miracle happened and my husband was allowed in the hospital because um, I, I was falling apart. I was just falling apart. I wanted, I wanted to die. I was alone. I wasn't feeling good at all. I had my stomach, my, like everything was falling apart. My world was falling apart. I no longer wanted to exist. Um, and thankfully my husband was able to see me. And at some point the conversation turned to maybe it's time to stop. And as soon as that, I realized that was an option. I just was able to just to just breathe. And you know, we we talked that over with my nurse at Moffitt, like this is an option. To no stop one, treatment. To like, stop, yeah, yeah. To stop treatment, stop chemo. Um and so I was released from the hospital, came home, and a day or two later. I had a letter from my aunt and she said, it's okay to stop. And I I wasn't even sure if she knew exactly what all, like the details of what all was going on down here. She, she's out of state. And, um, but her letter, like, she's like, you're gonna, you're killing yourself. Um, it's okay to stop. You're, you're, this is clearly killing you. Um, and to have, someone on the outside, someone who was just removed from the details of the situation, say that it was okay, just gave me that second like sigh of relief. Hmm. And whenever I thought about it's okay to stop, that just gave me a piece um, that yes, it's okay to stop. So uh, my husband and I went back and forth, I think for a couple more days we met with uh, my oncologist at Moffitt and just talked over what the risks were, what we were looking at. If we stopped now, here's the numbers, you know, here's the percentages. If we stop now, if you continue, here's the percentages. Um, obviously the goal is to do all 14. Yeah. But here we are dealing with uh 39-year-old woman with Ewing sarcoma, which is rare. Um, the numbers talk speak more towards younger demographics who, mm-hmm. who are a, a little more resilient than I am. Um, and also, they didn't necessarily just have a Whipple. So 
in taking into factor all these considerations and the numbers, the percentages that we were looking at, we said, it's okay. We're, we're going to stop. And that was also weird because it was always going to the next thing. We were always doing the next thing, taking care of the next thing. We got to get to this next chemo, do the next chemo. And my husband felt really weird because he, he was my, my cancer secretary, if you will. He was always like going towards the next thing, filing the insurance paperwork, filing this, getting me to this, being my, you know, and once all that stopped, it was just this weird, like, okay, now what? <laughs> um, it was a relief and kind of like this, this weird space. What's next? Yeah. But that did give me the opportunity to fully heal from the Whipple um, because, and I, like, I was still severely depressed um, at that time. And thankfully Moffitt also has a behavioral medicine um, group and so I had been on medication for depression and anxiety. And you know, so we were talking through all that, going through all of that um, and, and getting myself to a better place. So thankfully, um, I had a CT scan, you know, I think like a few months later uh, after stopping chemo, everything was clear. And then I was, I was doing the scans every three months, then it became every four months. And now I'm on every six months. And so far, thank God, like everything has been clear, um, no evidence of disease. And I'm managing my, my post Whipple life. Um, it's getting better. I've gained back a lot of my weight, um, which my gastroenterologist who's like, nah, you, you're all, you're not going to gain that back. And like, here I am a couple of years later and, and I'm almost like, Ooh, maybe I need to slow down on my eating a little bit. <laughs> um, and, uh, I can eat most everything that I want to eat. Uh, I am on, uh, Creon. I know that's, uh, yeah. something that us Whipplers, uh, are recommended to take. And so I'm doing that and just trying to make sure now, now I'm just trying to make sure that I do take my medicine. Cause some days you just wake up and you're like, nah, I'm not, nah, not feeling it. So yeah. now I just need to be consistent with that and everything. But so far everything has been good. Um, and I think the funny thing is that cancer and the experiences that people have through cancer, it's such a two very opposing things can be very true at the same time. I absolutely hated going through what I went through. Hated it, hated it. Would never, like, one star, do not recommend. But on the other hand, I am so thankful to have had that experience because I have new perspectives, new zest for life. Um, I, I quit a job that I wasn't thrilled about going to, uh, to focus on a passion in the family business. Um, I have traveled more than ever. I have like, you just have these new perspectives and new experiences that um, you wouldn't have had otherwise. And so I think that's really special, uh, a really special gift that unfortunately Sometimes someone has to go through something horrific to come out the other side with. Powerful stuff, Christina. 
I've got a couple questions and, and thank you for sharing that journey with us. And then, uh, you know, I know I'm going to bring this up. We talked about this before we hit record, how people had said, hey, like it's not pancreatic cancer because it's Ewing sarcoma. But like if you do the research, according to the NIH, which is the National Institute of Health, which oversees our healthcare system here in the United States, it is. It's just a very rare, very, very rare form of pancreatic cancer. So I want to get that out first. So anyone listening, like I know we, we, I guess I alluded in the beginning that this wasn't necessarily going to be pancreatic cancer, but it is like going through this and doing our research like this is. So like you have every right to say that and anyone who's listening or wants to debate that, like you, I love how your dog just got up on the bed. I love dogs. <laughs> we love dogs here at Roger Purple. Um, you can debate that with me anytime, any day. You can email me. You can hit me up on social media. I, I don't care. But what you went through is pancreatic cancer. So I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah, um, I think it is It is confusing for people because what, like, again, not to, not to throw Steve Jobs again under the bus, but what people know is pancreatic cancer. I think, you know, it is, is common, the common type of pancreatic cancer, but I don't want to dismiss anyone else's uh, type of pancreatic cancer because it is a cancer on the pancreas. And so um, it, it's, it's hard for, for people who, you know, don't have that knowledge, which I didn't. So when I was told yeah. I had pancreatic cancer, I thought of this one type of cancer. And um, so, yeah, now I think, you know, if you have a cancer on your pancreas, let's call it pancreatic cancer. And we can also distinguish, you know, sure, it's Ewing sarcoma. Subtypes. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, I mean, so Steve Jobs, which I'd love you bring that up. Like he was a neuroendocrine cancer. Mm -hmm. He wasn't adenocarcinoma, like a Patrick Swayze. Um, You know, just to use probably, or an Alex Trebek probably is probably a, a more, current celebrity that had pancreatic cancer. Um, so I got a couple questions here and then we're going to share with our audience where they can connect with you. Cause I know you've been, you just been pretty active on social. You got a website, talk about this whole thing. My first question here and, and all the questions I'm going to ask are loaded. Um, and I always preface that Yay. there's no right or there's no right or wrong to them. Um, it, they're your answers. And, and that's what we're looking for. You bring up faith. You also brought up, and I've mentioned this before, the roles of you and your husband. Were there tools? Because I I heard a lot of stuff here about the mental. We heard a lot of the stuff about the mental aspect. And so I guess the question here is, were there tools or things that you did from that mental aspect that helped you get through this all? My initial response is no, <laughs> but um, it um, there were several things that I attempted. Uh, I don't know if they worked or not. Um, I'm here, so but I don't. So I'll just say what what I experienced. Um, my faith certainly played a major role in me being here today. I dove into the Bible uh, as much as I could during the time where I was like, I don't want to read. I can't read. Um, I 
I prayed as hard as I, harder than I, I asked people to pray for me. If I knew that people were praying for me, that was, that felt, that was such a boost um, to me to receive cards in the mail, such a boost from people that I didn't even know had never met such a boost. Um, I, towards the beginning of my diagnosis and treatment, I tried therapy. Um, it was a little too woo for me. Uh, and I, I just, I couldn't be in that space. When you say therapy, like what a therapist, like one-on-one or group yeah. or. Yeah, it was a Zoom, um, <laughs> COVID, yay, yeah. uh, Zoom meeting. Um, and it, it, it was just a, a different level than, uh, well, okay. My, what I really wanted during treatment, what I was really looking for was someone who was going through the exact same thing as me at the exact same time as me. And that was never going to happen. That wasn't Ewing sarcoma on the pancreas and someone going through that at the exact same time as me in Tampa or Orlando, that, that just wasn't going to happen. I was always searching for someone to commiserate with because Mm -hmm. no one understood. And I never found that. Um, And I was, it, it really, I feel terrible, but in even every time I went to the hospital or down to Moffitt, like I was always looking for someone who is in worse condition than I was because I was, it was just that hope of like, I'm okay. Like I'm, I'm doing okay. But I always found myself looking out and feeling like I, I look the worst. I'm in the worst condition. Like this, like, so it was just this really, like, all I wanted was someone to commiserate with someone who understood what I was going through. And I tried a zoom meeting with, um, a young adult, you know, cancer patient group, but they didn't seem to want to talk about their cancer. And I was at this point where like, I needed to process, I needed someone to say like, yeah, that, that sucks. Or, Oh, I experienced that. Or, Oh, and my port was placed. Yeah. I mean, I had kind of the same reaction and, Oh, I've had inpatient chemo. Like I just was trying to find someone to relate to. And unfortunately, um, that didn't really happen. They did put me in touch with, um, a woman who had a Ewing sarcoma, I think on her kidney, but she had gone through that like, six or seven years prior. So she was more removed from it. And I know she wanted to be more, she wanted me to be positive about it. She wanted to exude a positiveness about it because she was, she's doing fantastic. She's alive. She's doing great. Um, but I think she was just far enough removed to where you just, you didn't get that same, like, I'm having a just a traumatic time in the hospital. How did you deal with that? And it's like, well, you know, I just tried to do what I could and read books and paint by number. And I'm just like, no, that's just not happening. Um, so really I don't have any tips or tricks in, in, in dealing with the mental side. 
it's just um if i just slept a lot and i know that's not necessarily the healthiest thing either but i that was my escape that was my escape from the torture of you know the mental torture from the anxiety from the depression and yeah. from the physical torture the side effects that my body was experiencing and um it, i i would cry i would scream um that kind of was therapeutic uh there was some terrible screams coming from this bedroom that um you know that i had to get out um and so it it i know that really was hard for my family and my husband to see me like that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't have like a, 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 a hack. There's no right or wrong to it. Right. And, and yeah. you know, something you just said though, and I don't know if you've ever, you probably have never thought of this, Christina. I know you said you you've dealt with depression. Um, in the past and, and let me preface this by saying like mental health is is something that we take very seriously um on the podcast but also something that i think doesn't get talked about enough in the aspect that i think i think everyone deals with depression at some point in their life whether they want to accept it or not and i think something accepting things and in, in particular that are like cancer um accepting like that you get depressed um, and, you know, you need assistance and whatever assistance that may be in a positive way, um, whether that's therapy or, you know, talking about it or, you know, exercising or whatever that is to get you out of that is, is really critical. But you dealt with that and then now you got to deal with this cancer and not to say that they're related, but I wonder if dealing with that depression early on kind of prepared you to deal with the cancer the way you dealt with it, I guess is the question here. Have you ever thought about that? Because sometimes as a guest, I get to kind of listen to people's experiences that they had early on, that they go through these trials and tribulations, and then they get this cancer diagnosis. And it's almost like these things that they, they did previously prepared them to handle this thing called cancer. Yeah, I think it helped me recognize that I was depressed, that I was going through anxiety. Like, um, I mean, if you if you've been diagnosed with cancer and aren't experiencing some type of anxiety, that's to me that's weird. But yeah. but um, yeah. yeah, it helped me recognize. Yes, I do probably need help. I don't, I think it took my mom and my husband to initiate getting that help. Mm. Uh, because I, I, I think I was just in a place where I, I don't know. I, I just kind of, I feel like through my treatment, I just kind of sat back and just let things happen um, to me. But <laughs> with such resistance as well. Um, yeah, so that's where like another thing where like two very opposite things can be true at the same time is like right. yes, I want to move forward that with this. We need to move forward. I need help. And on the other hand, I'm just gonna sit back and let whatever happened happen. Um 
So it, it, it's quite a, a conundrum. And but I do think it was helpful knowing, OK, I've had a history of depression and anxiety. This is obviously like a, a time that that would pop up again. Yeah. But it wasn't until a little bit later where it, we kind of realized the chemo drugs weren't helping that at, at all. Yeah. Either. So um, that did make me feel a little better that it wasn't just me, um, that it was the drugs affecting uh, my mental state as well. Which this is such a powerful subject that we're on. And, and I just want to say this is I, I think this is all very normal. Um, what you experienced during chemo, but having you know, in depression, I, I impacts us all. Like I said, anyone who says it doesn't like is like, I don't know, maybe, maybe they're, they're ignorant. And that's another battle to, to <laughs> battle at some point. But I think acceptance, I think is the big piece here and having that acceptance and realizing like, Hey, time out, I need help. Or, you know, what? I've gone through this before. I accept that this is depression or I need assistance here. It, it could, it's the medication. So we've got to kind of you know, we've got to redirect here. And and these are all normal and happen to a lot of people, but it's powerful to see like how you came through that and sharing that experience is, is just awesome, you know, for us here on this podcast to be able to do that. So thank you for allowing yourself. Uh, I guess I would say, you know, allowing us to hear that uh, because I know that's not easy. It's not easy for anyone to kind of look back at these experiences that, like you said, like, that was like a real shitty time, you know, and, 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 and the other piece of this, which I love that you, you talk about this, like, and, and we tell patients all the time, I think like there's glamour cancers and pancreatic cancer is not a glamour cancer. Like the Whipple, as we've talked about is no joke. And you said eight months, like we tell people like it's eight months to a year to you eventually may feel normal. And for a lot of people, that's like, they can't think past like, two weeks. Right. Right. And it's these like little baby steps that, you know, you have to do in order to get there. So this is a long time, not to mention, as we mentioned before, like this is during COVID, which sucked for everyone. And now you throw cancer into the mix. That's like exacerbates it. Like, it's just like this nightmare that just never ends. Right. Cause of COVID, the loneliness and then cancer and all the, like the, the crap that comes with cancer. So yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for for sharing that and and for allowing us to do that. My last question here, and again, this is the a loaded question. There's no right or wrong. What is your definition of pancreatic cancer, in particular, your experience with Ewing sarcoma pancreatic cancer? My definition of pancreatic cancer is a cancer that appears on your pancreas. Um, I. Yeah, I, I that should be shared by all people who have a cancer on their pancreas. Um, I know, as we discussed before, I, I think and, you know, I feel for people, too, because um, I'm in a support group on Facebook and so many people will share that they've had the Whipple or, you know, they've they've yeah, they've had the Whipple. And then so many of the follow up questions will be what type of cancer did you have or did you have X, Y, Z? Were you dealing with this? Did you and 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 then I put myself. I was in that position. I wanted to share an experience with someone. I wanted to know that someone else 
had the same experience that I did. So I'm sure it could come across at times as people downplaying like, oh, well, you didn't have my kind of pancreatic cancer. You don't know what I've been through. Um, But that, you know, we all have this, we have a whipple in common. And we, we all went through something terrible, right? Like we've experienced something that no one wants to experience. Um, so let's not downplay, you know, any, anyone else's experience. And we all have our own story. So many people are trying to compare saying like, oh, well, I had a friend who died um, five years later or whatever. And it's like, that's not your story. Like, this is my story. And I think we have to own that. And and even though there was a time when I was trying to compare myself to others, I shouldn't have been doing that. Now I see, like, this is my story. This is what I get to tell other people. And it's not going to look the same as your experience. So, you know, I, I just, I love being able to tell my story when I was going through all of this, I thought I'd never want to talk about it again. I wanted to forget it. I was so mad at my husband for taking photos of me during treatment. I was like, I, I'm not smiling. I am crying in this photo. Why are you taking pictures of me? But, you know, last night, the night before I went back and I looked through these photos that I hadn't seen before. And I was grateful because I can remember the time when things were complete crap and out of control. And I can look at where I am today and say, this is my story. And I can I can share this with whoever wants to listen, whoever needs hope. Um, I just, I'm so thankful to share that going through hell can be worth it, <laughs> which sounds so weird to say, but it can be worth it. And one year... After my Whipple surgery, I jumped out of a plane um, going skydiving because it was so much easier than going through chemo and surgery. Like when you get to that point in your life when you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump out of a plane because it's easy. Like <laughs> you're kind of feeling pretty good about yourself. So I just I just want to share that there's hope. Stop comparing yourself to others. Your story is not or their story is not your story. And, you know, it. it there's don't always pay attention to the numbers either. You're going to see numbers you're going to see stats that are, that seem silly, ridiculous, or scary. But I think those mean absolutely nothing because it's your story. You nailed it. Uh, it's so powerful. And, and every story is important and every story is different. And that's the the wonderful thing about this podcast that we're able to share so many stories and hopefully someone, you know, who might be going through it, you know, as they listen to this or in a couple months can take a nugget or two and, and, you know, they may have some similarities. Um, but the fact is that we're putting it out there. Um, and, and hopefully the next person, like I said, who goes through it has that one extra thing in their back pocket that they now know because they listen to this podcast. Christina, thank you so much for allowing us to share your story. Our last thing here for those listening um, that want to connect with you or follow you along your journey. I know you've been pretty active lately on the web, on social. Where's the best place for people to do that? 
Sure. So yeah, I just started an Instagram specific to my cancer journey. It's um, on Instagram at living.rarely. Um, and then I also do have a website that I'm updating and kind of overhauling. Uh, it started out as a blog about my experience and I kind of want to clean it, clean it up a bit and make it accessible for uh, those in the medical field and patients as well. So um, that is livingrarely.com, L-I-V-I-N-G-R-A-R-E-L-Y.com. And uh, yeah, please uh, feel free to reach out and get in touch because I'm happy to share my story and happy happy to talk with anyone who's who's looking for some compassion and understanding and needs needs an ear to vent to. So yes, reach out. Thank you, Christina, for being on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like today's episode, please share this episode and follow the Project Purple podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Thanks for listening. And until next time, be safe. Thank you.